Thanks, Emily. Friends, uh, we've ended our series in the life of Jacob last week, which is uh, looking through the Old Old Testament, the book of Genesis, and we see Jacob's life there. And and as we are done with that, we're going to continue back to our other series that we've been doing, which is through the book of John. The book of John is found in the New Testament, and the book of John is what people call the gospel. The gospel is just a, a... a name, or the Gospels. The Gospels is a name for the books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that records the life and ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. So where are we now in the story of Jesus' life in the book of John? Well, we're in this period of time, right after Jesus has finished his public ministry, in verses 1 to 13, he's taught, uh, he's, he's, he's uh, spoken and, and, and preached in different places, he's healed people, he's conversed with Pharisees. So that's, verse, that's chapters 1 to 13, we're done with that, but this is also before uh, when, he was, when Jesus was captured and crucified in verses 18 to 21. Okay, so 1 to 13 is Jesus' ministry. 18 to 21 is when he's captured and crucified. Verses 14 to 17, in the middle of those two sections, is where we are now. It's called the farewell discourse, chapters 14 to 17, where Jesus specifically explains to his disciples what the cross is and how he's going to depart from them. And today, we're in chapter 15, which is in the middle of this farewell discourse. And as we'll see... In this part of the farewell discourse, Jesus covers a whole range of topics, as we just read in our uh, scripture reading just now. Jesus explains to his disciples his identity. Jesus explains to his disciples his redemption or God's redemption plan throughout history. Jesus gives perspective to his disciples um, of what obedience to God is all about. And as we'll see, all of these array of topics finally accumulates itself to verse 11, where Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, joy. I realize is a concept that a lot of us don't mind hearing about, perhaps get even a bit excited when we hear that this topic is going to be touched on. But I think also at the same time, many of us, if we're honest, at least I do, feel this slight sense of apathy and tiredness of hearing about this topic of joy because everyone seems to promise it, but yet no one seems to really be able to maintain it, at least not consistently for a long term. You see advertisers paint a picture of joy in their billboards, but when you buy their products, this long-term joy that we're promised in this picture only lasts a little while. We find ourselves in need of the next purchase to maintain the high. Motivational speakers and books that we buy and hear promises these magical 10-step programs or or, or 12 steps towards having joy, but then we listen to them and we read them and we find perhaps some hope of joy when we read them, but when we actually try and do it for long term, most of us instead feel this sense of defeat only finding ourselves to repetitively ask the question, why isn't this working for me? What's wrong with me? You you felt this too, right? It's not just me, I hope. That no matter how hard we try and attain and hold on to this thing we call joy, it seems to come and go in and out of our lives like a brief cool breeze on a hot, scorching day. And despite our attempts to grasp it, it simply dodges through our disappointed fingers, 
leaving our hearts callous. And perhaps a bit more cynical to the next person that comes along and promises it. And here comes Jesus in verse 11, saying, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Well, our cynical hearts may ask, what is this claim of joy? And what makes his claims any different than all the others that's failed in the past? Well, we'll, we'll get there. But first, Jesus must take us on a journey through God's redemptive history and finally unto himself. So let's get to it. Three things I want to point out from our passage today. One, how God's redemptive plan points us to Christ. Two, how God's redeemed people grow joyfully in Christ. And three, how God's redeemed people point others to Christ. How God's redemptive plan points us to Christ, how God's redeemed people grow joyfully in Christ, and how God's redeemed people point others to Christ. Let's start with our first point. Point one, how God's redemptive plan points us to Christ. Jesus, in verse one, if you read it again, says a whole lot more than what he seems to be saying at first. He said to his disciples, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now, friends, Jesus, in this one verse, in this one sentence, takes us through the timeline of all of Old Testament literature and history. What do I mean? The vine, if you read all the Old Testament, throughout Old Testament literature and text, is the vine is an imagery that is used to describe God's people throughout the Old Testament. I put a few passages here up for you. Psalm 80 verses 4 and 8. O Lord of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Your people's prayers. You brought a vine out of Egypt. Who did God bring out of Egypt? Israel, his people. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Jeremiah 2, 1 to 2 and 21. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Israel, God's people. Thus says the Lord, Yet I planted you a choice vine. Holy, pure of seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? The vine is to describe Jerusalem, who turned away from the Lord, became a wild vine. Ezekiel 15.6 Therefore, thus says the Lord, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The vine here is to describe God's people, Israel, Jerusalem, and the Old Testament over and over again. Now, as you read these verses that were just up here, you should have noticed another pattern. That every time God talks about this vine and describes God's people in the Old Testament as the vine, he's always angry at them. <laughs> he's always talking to them as if they're deserving of wrath and judgment. Why? Well, because if you read the Old Testament over and over again, they abandon God. They worship other false gods. They acted immorally and corruptly. And God, being the just and holy God that he is, cannot just let sin slide. It must be dealt with. So his just fury towards sin and impending wrath awaits this vine, his people. Now, a lot of churches and a lot of Christians shy away from talking about this topic of God being wrathful or angry or just. Or righteous. We don't want to talk about God as this person who, or as this God who, who punishes sin. We said, let's not talk about God's wrath and God's sin. Let's just talk about God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. But friends, you cannot be more wrong 
Look, if you avoid talking about God's wrath towards sin, you're never going to understand just how deep Jesus' love was for you on the cross. You see, the more you minimize God's wrath, the more you minimize what Jesus actually took for you on that cross. You won't see how loving and gracious God is. You won't see the price that he paid for you on the cross if you deny the amount of debt you owe. When he died for you on the cross, he didn't just take a slap on the wrist. He took the full measure of God's holy and just fury meant for sin. That's love. That's grace. You avoid that, you can't see love and grace. You can't minimize God's wrath if you want to see the depth of Jesus' love. And we see all of this in verse 1 as well. Why do you think Jesus describes himself as the true vine? Remember, what was the fate of the vine as described as God's Old Testament uh, people? What was going to happen to the vine? It's supposed to be burned and punished. God's wrath was supposed to come down upon it, right? What do you think Jesus is saying when he's saying, I'm the true vine? He's saying, I'll replace you. I'll replace God's people. I'll take all the wrath and the fear that you deserve. I'll take upon myself on the cross your just wrath. Don't you dare minimize God's wrath, he says. Because if you do that, you'll minimize what it is I went through for you on that cross. Only when you see the heights of God's wrath for us will you see the depths of Jesus' love for you. And friends, this redemption through Christ has been God's plan all along. Look at the second part of verse 1. Not only God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the true vine who's going to replace us and, and take upon himself God's wrath for our sins, but God the Father is also described as who? As what? As a vine dresser. What is a vine dresser? A vine dresser is a person who prunes and trims and protects the vine as it grows up. And is a person that makes sure everything is controlled and happens in such a way to where this vine grows properly and fulfills its intended purpose. Remember, the vine is an imagery describing God's people throughout the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying here, the father, the vine dresser, he's saying God the father is the one who trims and prunes and controls everything that happened throughout Old Testament history. All those years to make sure that God's people, the vine, the people of Israel, even despite all their sin, even despite all their rebellion and failures, will progress forward to fulfill God's redemptive plan so that one day through them, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, the true vine, who is to take upon himself our sins, can be born. You get that? This is crazy to think about. Think about all the sins that God's people in the Old Testament committed. The vine. Think about all the sins that the vine in the Old Testament committed. We've mentioned some of them in our confession of sin earlier, but think about all the sins that Jesus' uh, forefathers in his family tree, as you see in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 16, what they've done. This is Matthew chapter 1, 1 to 16. Where does it start? Jesus Christ, the son of who? Abraham. You know what Abraham did? He sold his wife to a foreign king for self-protection. Jesus Christ, and then after Abraham, you see next in line, Isaac. 
Isaac, who disobeyed God in his old age. And then next in line, Jacob. Jacob was a liar and a thief and a coward and a lustful man that we've seen over and over again rebel against God. And then it goes to Judah, who sold his younger brother Joseph to slavery. That led the Israelites to Egypt in Moses' day. And then after God freed them from Egypt, what did they do? They worshipped a fa false god named Baal. But still, God is patient, and he brought them safely to the promised land where the cycle of rebellion happened over and over and over again in the book of Judges. So what happened? God raised a king to, to control them, King David. You know what this king, this, this supposed hero did? He killed his own soldier, Uriah, so that he could sleep with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, who, by the way, became the mother of Solomon. And I don't even know where to start with that guy. Finally, you get to Matthew uh, 1.16. You see Eliezer and then Mathan, who fathered another guy named Jacob, and another guy who's, whose name is Joseph as well, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Do you see how this whole time, the gracious and sovereign God, the Father, the vine dresser, was in control, pruning, cultivating this wicked vine, this sinful vine, who is God's people in the Old Testament, patiently persevering through all that sin so that one day, by grace, God the Son, Jesus Christ, can be born in human flesh under human parents with human predecessors so that he could replace us humans and take our place, our punishment for our sins on the cross where he drunk the fullness of God's wrath. This is who your God is, Christian makes Christmas a whole, whole lot more meaningful, doesn't it? See, the, this whole point of this branch vine imagery is Jesus saying, you want to be part of God's people? You can't do it on your own. You can't shake off all your sins. You've tried, haven't you? You've really tried, and you've failed. I mean, externally, you might have been able to fake it well, but God looks at the heart too. And in your hearts of hearts, we know that we find hidden lusts, hidden arrogances, hidden prides, hidden anxieties, festering angers, selfishness, jealousies, that no matter how hard you try and shake them off, they're still there. That's why I've come as the true vine to take your place as a human being so that I can live the life you should have lived, Jesus said, and died the death that you deserve. And by doing so, earning for you a salvation that you could have never earned on your own. This is how you become part of God's people. Not by earning uh, and trusting in your own religiosity, but by receiving the redemptive purpose God has fulfilled in Christ and rest all of your hope for salvation in his work alone, just like a branch that finds life by resting in the vine and in the vine alone. If you do that, Jesus says, the proof, the evidence that you have trusted in me for salvation, how, how can you know that you truly have received Christ as Lord and Savior? You will bear fruit. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. What is this fruit? Well, you see in verse 10, it's obedience, a desire for obedience to Christ. But let me stick with me. There's more to it, right? It's not just any kind of obedience. Notice Jesus' specific 
a, a description here to describe Christian obedience. He didn't talk about it in a mechanical manner. He didn't talk about it like you're building a house, like you're putting one brick on top of another. He chose to talk about it in an organic manner, like a branch that bears fruit from inside out because of an overflow from the vine. In other words, you will know that you've placed your trust in Christ. You've received him as Lord and Savior. You've accepted this big redemptive plan God has planned out for you if your obedience to him is produced from an inward heart change that has happened to you because of what Christ did for you on the cross. That's organic fruit. Not, friends, an obedience that hopes to build up your own tower of righteousness like, like bricks as if this tower of righteousness is what saves you. That's mechanical fabrication, not organic fruit. Well, then what's the difference? How can I tell whether or not my obedience is organic fruit produced from an inward change because of what Christ has done for me, because I've already been forgiven, and not due to this mechanic fabrication of trying to build up my own righteousness? Well, whether or not you believe in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Already you are clean, because of the word I've spoken to you. Friends, I'm afraid that some of us are still obeying God because we're trying to clean ourselves up. I'm afraid that some of us are sitting here at church today because you think that by coming here, it could somehow make you cleaner. It could somehow build up your resume before God and that somehow you'd convince him that you're worth loving. Friends, if that's why you're here, you've missed it. You're putting a burden on yourself that no one throughout the Old Testament history could have accomplished. Abraham couldn't do it. Isaac couldn't do it. Jacob couldn't do it. Moses, David, Solomon, all of them failed. None of them could do it. None of them can become divine. None of them can earn this life in within themselves. And we think going to church, that's going to do it? <laughs> if you're here today... Or if any of your acts of obedience is done because you think that somehow it can make you more righteous and more acceptable to God, that is not organic fruit. That is mechanical fabrication. Because it is birthed out of a, not out of faith and rest, not out of a trust in his redemptive plan of the Father, who's the vine dresser, who's, who's controlled this redemptive plan for you, but it's birthed out of fear and guilt. Is that you? Has your obedience to God this whole time felt like you're trying to impress someone who is way out of your league? Does it feel like you're stuck in an eternal first date with God? Always trying to put your best foot forward. Always trying to hide and, 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 and conceal the things you're ashamed of. Always insecure whether or not you're actually good enough for him. Has your religiosity make you feel like you're in this stuffy restaurant with stuffy clothes on, trying to win the impossible approval of God who's sitting across the table? If that's you, know and be weary. All your rigorous attempts to clean yourself and impress God by all your acts of righteousness will never win him over. A tall, mechanical, religious, fabricated tower of self-righteousness you might build. But yet a fruitless branch you shall remain.
you must first place your faith in him, rest in him, receive the redemption plan he's laid out throughout salvation history. See, here's what's got to happen. You've got to go beyond agreeing with the facts of redemption and actually truly receive it. See, if you hear all this and you say this, I believe that Jesus Christ and his cross is a fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. That's just agreeing with facts. What you have to say, you, get, you have to say this, I believe that Jesus Christ and his cross is the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan for me. That's faith. When Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died, that, that's just agreement to a fact. But when he continues to say, Christ died for our sins, that's faith. Which is it for you? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died as a fulfillment of redemptive history, as a mere fact? Or do you believe that Jesus Christ died as the fulfillment of God's redemptive history for your sins? Until you're able to say that, you will not bear fruit. Because you have yet to be attached and rest upon this vine, Jesus Christ, who's offered you his life through his death. But if you have said that, if you have truly rested upon the salvation of Christ and what he's offering you on the cross, Jesus now instructs you of how it is you are called to live out this great and gracious salvation. Point number two, how the redeemed grows joyfully in Christ. Now, whereas verses one to six, Jesus is saying, Receiving his cross will give us a new heart and a new desire for obedience, right? One to six. Uh, this organic desire for obedience will come out. Verses seven to 11 is saying, you got to listen to it. You got to cultivate it. You got to continue to obey. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, let me just be clear. He is, of course, not saying you have to obey me in order to maintain your salvation. You have to obey me in order to stay saved. As if the precious blood of Christ merely aids us halfway, but then it's up to us and our strength to maintain it. No, scripture is clear. Once by grace you've received the saving work of Christ, he will never cast you out. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus says, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Your salvation in Christ is secure. But what we find here is sort of a progression. He's saying that at first, when you realize you're a sinner, when you realize you're incapable of earning your own salvation, unable to clean yourselves from your sins, then that leads you to the cross, to God's redemptive plan, that he's taken upon himself all the wrath that we deserve. Then, as branches that rely fully in this vine and in this vine alone, we have life because of the nourishment that comes from the vine, producing in us organic fruit, which is the desire for obedience to him. So, now that you do have this new desire, what are you to do? Well, Jesus continues, be rigorous and intentional to do them. Whatever you must do, as humanly capable, do it. Obey. That's how you continually abide in the vine. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Verse 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, which is obeying his commands, he bears much fruit. So, let me summarize. 
by obeying these new organic desires that you feel because of Christ and what he's done for you, you will then bear more fruit and have even more of a desire to obey him. See, friends, so many Christians, I'm afraid that we are so scared of falling into the mechanical fabrication in point one. We're so scared of being legalistic as if we can earn God's salvation that we've swung the pendulum way too far on the other way and that we think fruit is supposed to be automatic as if growth toward Christ-likeness is this easy, relaxing, unchallenging endeavor. No. Christ here says, obey. Obey these new desires that you have. Put in more intentionality and energy in obeying them than an athlete does in training and a soldier does in war, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2. And when you do that, you know what's going to happen? Verse 5, you will bear more organic fruit. You will have even more of a desire for obedience to Christ. You see the progression? See, organic Christian fruit is neither suffocating like the mechanical fabrication that we talked about, but neither is it easy and automatic that it's often described to be. If it was easy, Jesus would have just said this, I'm the vine, and as branches, trust and rest in what I've done for you on the cross, and then just let it flow, you know? Just, just, just kind of let it happen. You know, just, it'll, it'll just automatically grow. No. Verse 5, he says, continue to listen to those new desires. Continue to abide in me. Whatever you need to do as humanly possible, you'll never lose your salvation. You'll never be cut off from the branch. But if you don't continue to do and, 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 and follow through with these new desires that you have in me, you will not bear much fruit. In other words, if in verses 1 to 6, Jesus is saying, your obedience is something that is shaped by your heart's desire for Christ. Verses 7 to 11, Jesus is saying, at the same time, your obedience is also something that shapes your heart desires toward Christ. 1 to 6, your desire for obedience is something that comes out of your heart for Christ because of his cross and what he's done for you. 7 to 11, if you continue to obey them, it will also shape your hearts continually toward him. He's telling his disciples obedience isn't just something you do. It is also something, it, it also does something to you. I mixed that up. Let me repeat that. Obedience isn't just something you do, but it also does something to you. And if you keep obeying it, you'll keep cultivating your heart's desires in such a way to where we hope at one point you'll bear so much fruit you'll have so much of a passion desire to Christ where all your wills and all your wishes are in line with Christ and all your prayers and all your wishes and all your requests will be in line with God's wishes. And this, friends, is where you become joyful. This is what Jesus means in verse 7. Stick with me. It says, all getting to this point. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He's saying here, if you've abided in me so much, if you continue to listen to this new heart desires you have, cultivate it, all of your wishes will become my wishes because all that you want will be all that I want. If that's the case, ask for whatever you wish. It'll be done for you because all you're gonna wish for is what God wishes for. So of course it'll happen. Let me give examples. It doesn't mean that if you organically obey God, 
your prayer for riches will be answered. It means that if you organically obey God, your desires will be changed in such a way that you won't even pray for riches in the first place. Instead, you'll pray for daily bread as the Lord's prescribed in the Lord's prayer. You'll pray for contentment with the life of simplicity. You'll pray for a kind of financial contentment so that you can give more to the poor. You'll pray that he grows your trust in him instead of the number in your bank account for peace. That's what you'll pray for because that's what you'll want. See, friends, if those are the things you continually wish and ask God for, it will be done for you. Verse 7 doesn't mean if you organically obey God, when you pray for fame and recognition, God will give it to you. It means that if you organically uh, uh, bear fruit and obey Him, your desires will be changed in such a way you won't even pray for fame and recognition in the first place. You know what you'll pray for? You'll pray for a heart that is more interested in serving others rather than making everything about improving your social reputation. You'll pray for a peace in Christ and not one dependent upon how others think of you. If that's what you wish and pray for, Jesus says in verse 7, it will be done for you. Let's just do one more for clarity's sake. Verse 7 does not mean if you organically obey God, he'll listen to your prayers for a spouse. It means if you organically obey God, your passions will grow in such a way that even when you pray for a spouse, which, which isn't wrong to do, by the way, however, at the same time, you'll ask him to not make this imaginary future person the object of your worship. And you'll find a peace and contentment in him. And you'll ask him for a source of joy that, that can sustain you when you're single, when you're not. If that's what you wish for, if that's what you pray for, it will be done. If you listen to the organic fruit of desires of obedience to Christ and continue to obey them, your passions, your desires will continue to be in tune with his passions and his desires, meaning that all your wishes and all your prayers will continue to be in line with his will. And if your wishes and your prayers are his wishes and his prayers, then friends, it'll be done. You'll get it all. You'll get everything you want because what you want is what God wants. And what happens to someone who has everything that he wants? They're joyful. Do you see that? Their joy is full. You see, the reason why every other promise for joy that you've been offered hasn't worked is because they've all been focused on fulfilling your desires, your preferences, your joys, your wants. Jesus here is doing the exact opposite. He's telling you to align your desires, your preferences, your joys, and your wants to his preferences and his wants, to the creator through whom all joy resides. Look very carefully again at verse 11. He says, these things I've spoken to you so that, what? My joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He did not say these things I've spoken to you and then jump to so that your joy may be full. He said these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. My joy, my passions, my desires, my longings, my loves has to first infiltrate your heart and shape it in such a way to where you will no longer pray Father, 
hallowed be my name, let my kingdom come, let my will be done. But rather, you'll begin to pray, Father, hallowed be your name, let your kingdom come, and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if that's what you want, if that's what you pray for, Jesus has promised in verse 7, it will be done for you. And you'll have everything that you want. And if you have everything that you want, joy to the fullest is yours. See, it must make us wonder that perhaps the reason why God isn't fulfilling your wishes right now is because he is first trying to reshape them. It has to make us wonder. Like a loving doctor who's trying to reshape the desires of a recovering addict. The reason why he's not answering your prayers right now and the reason why he's not giving you all that you want right now is because he's more interested in shaping what you want to what he wants. That's where you find joy. So stop being busy in trying to get God to fulfill your desires and start getting busy with aligning your desires with his. By obeying him. Not to earn your salvation, but because the desire which has been organically produced in you when you receive Christ on the cross is coming out. Listen to it. Keep obeying it. Keep abiding in the vine until all of who you are becomes in line with him. Then, friends, you'll have a kind of joy that is full and overflows to others. Last point. How God's redeemed people point others to Christ. Here in verses 12 to 17, we see the purpose of this joy. Verse 12, that you love one another as I have loved you. The fullness of my joy in you, Jesus says, will produce a kind of love for others that shows them the gospel. And as verse 13 says, it will cause you to even be willing to lay down your life for others, willing to sacrifice. Now, this doesn't just mean you'll give people a lot of money. No. This doesn't just mean um, um, you're going to give people a lot of emotional support. No. This doesn't just mean you're going to give people a lot of time. It, it certainly includes all those things, but it means you'll have a love for others that will cause you to share the message of God's redemption through Christ with them. Why am I saying that? One, because for you guys to know the gospel, for you to really understand and have received Christ and his redemptive plan, for you to know that and share with people only your earthly money and emotional support is like throwing your wallet and a few kind words to someone who's in a plane crash without telling them of the location of the parachute room that you know about. That's not love. See, you know of this room. You know where others can find redemption. That's what Jesus means in verse 15. You're no longer servants, unaware of what the Father is doing. Servants do not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You know now in the gospel the eternal redemption and purposes of God, of what Jesus offers on the cross. What he's asking you to do here is to have such a joy in him and such a love for others that's, that will make you be willing to give up something much more valuable than money. That will cause you to be willing to give up something much more valuable than your time or emotional capacity. What your Lord and Savior is asking you to give up is your reputation. Your reputation. He's telling you, you must love others more than you love their opinion of you. You must love other people more than you love their opinion of you. You must share with them my redemption plan 
even when they reject it. Sensitively, of course. Lovingly, of course. Winsomely, of course. Wisely, of course. But share nonetheless. Why would others hate the gospel message? Isn't it all about love and grace? Yeah, the gospel claims of a savior. But it also therefore implies we are too weak to save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. No one wants to hear that. The gospel speaks of grace, yes, but the very reason why we need that grace is because we are sinful beyond degree. No one wants to hear that. The gospel gives us a man who in love made right all the wrongs we've done. But that means there's such a thing as an objective right and wrong, and the cross has revealed us to be on the wrong. No one wants to hear that. The more you bear fruit, the more obedient you are to Christ, the more your desires are aligned with him, the more joyful you'll be, yes. But the more the world will see Christ in you and hear Christ from you, and many will not want to hear it. Next week, this is exactly where Jesus takes this monologue to. Next week, the second half of this monologue, we're not done in chapter 15, right? Verses 18 to 27, Jesus starts off with saying, if the world hates you, just know it's hated me first. And allowed, I allowed them to crucify me. I love them still. I persevered for them, and I'll do whatever it takes to save them. Now, Jesus leaves us here with an encouragement. How are we to persevere through all this? How are we continue to bear fruit when the world goes against us because they find this fruit to be too bright and too salty? Well, let's end with verse 16. Here is Jesus' encouragement. You did not choose me. Guys, I don't know how else to word that verse. <laughs> you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. Look, look at the missional verbs here. Go, bear fruit. Look at the missional verbs there. Even though the world might find it too bright and too salty, although your reputation is at stake, although they might push back, love them still. Go, continue obeying me, bear fruit. And here's your encouragement. You didn't choose me. No, no, no. You did not have the sobriety and the love upon your own uh, morality, upon your own consciousness to choose me. You're too sinful for that. I chose you. I've appointed you. Take a second to think about what that implies. That means throughout Old Testament history, Jesus is saying this. As the Father prunes and dresses the vine, which is the historic progression of the Old Testament uh, of people, uh, God's old, the Old Testament people. Remember, from the days of Abraham to 100 years later when Isaac was born, to 60 years later when Jacob was born, till around 400 years later to the days of Moses, and another four to 500 years when David and Solomon was born, and then to Isaiah 250 years later. All these years, and finally, 750 years later, to when Jesus was born. And then, 33 years later, to when he was crucified. Do you know who God has been thinking about that whole time? You. He chose you. He's been thinking about you. All that happened so that you may be saved. He's wanted you this whole time. Too good to be true? Bring it up with verse 16 and a host of other passages that testify to it. This whole time, 
He's had you in his mind. This is what gives you the courage to remain obedient. Abide in his love. Increasingly bear fruit, even if the world pushes back. Know that you have a great and sovereign, all-controlling, powerful, gracious God who can control even the archives of history itself for your salvation. And you have a sovereign, gracious, merciful, loving God who, although the world rejected him, the world hated him, the world crucified him, he could care less because he wanted you. He could care less. Take this world. Give me my people, he says. Which is you, if you received him as Lord and Savior. So receive him. Stop trying to earn your own salvation. Listen to and obey the new desires that you organically have after you've received him. And then rigorously align your passions with these new desires. Bear even more fruit. When you do so, your wishes will be so aligned to his that anything you ask for will happen because all you're asking for is what he wanted to happen in the first place. Giving you a fullness of joy, giving you all that you ever wanted so that you can love others like he has loved you and point them to him and his redemptive plan that he has revealed to you whom he calls his friends. Do all that to the glory and majesty and honor of our sovereign, gracious, redeeming God. All glory be to Christ. Let me pray.